Welcome to On Strategy Showcase, the classics episodes. I'm Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. You can connect with me on LinkedIn and you can see the creative work associated with this and all of our episodes on our website at onstrategyshowcase.com. And don't forget to follow or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you'll receive all the latest episodes. And if you have any questions about this episode or any of the others, you can send them to me at hello at onstrategyshowcase.com. That's hello at onstrategyshowcase.com. I'll select a few of them and attempt to answer, you know, sort of answer them in future shows. Our first classics episode is about the Avis We're Number Two campaign from the 1960s. This was a time when acknowledging any sort of weakness was seen as a real problem in advertising. The belief was that it's best to project confidence and never to celebrate what might be considered a weakness. Now, I understand that in many circles, that might still be the way many feel. And I hope that a campaigns like this and many others that have, have since been uh, sort of released, I think probably Adam Morgan and Eat, Big, Eat uh, Big Fish would probably have terrific examples of other, what they label as challenger brands that have that have used similar strategies against sort of the guerrilla brands within their category. And so it's interesting to study also what Adam's examples have shown, in addition to what we see here with uh, Avis. One thing to keep note of is, you know, this is back in the early 1960s. And it wasn't, however, the first time that DDB had done this. DDB was the agency for Avis uh, at a time back in those years when American cars were sort of akin to oversized powerboats on wheels. DDB had launched the VW Beetle in the U.S. with its Think Small campaign. So there was precedent and there was an understanding of the advantage of this sort of challenger brand of the day strategic approach. There were a couple of things that I thought were really interesting in the interview. Number one, Avis used a different go-to-market model than Hertz. Hertz was the market leader by significant percentage, but Hertz locations were inside cities where Avis put their rental offices at airports. So they took a very different approach to it. And number two, Avis had never made a profit. It had been around for roughly 13 years and had been in the red each year. After the campaign launched in the first year, they ended up in the black. That's certainly a, a nod to the effectiveness of this campaign. Their customer service at the time was terrible. So there was not only a need for an external refresh of the brand, but also an internal cultural refresh, which we talk about in the episode. Number five, and most importantly, arguably, is the fact that this was a brand way back then who had significant confidence in the ability of advertising to change the trajectory of the company and to drive profitability. That creativity had the ability to drive the business. It's such an unfortunate thing to see that so many companies and brands these days don't have that confidence. And arguably, it's the greatest problem that marketing faces is the fact that it is not believed to have the ability to make a significant impact on sales. And that was a core belief in this example that we're going to be talking about today. And then lastly, and one that I love also, was that the inspiration for the We Try Harder campaign actually came from an interview with a Navis employee. Which, which I loved. And we actually talk about a couple of examples of that in our own careers where that has actually been the case, which, uh, which I think was terrific. My guest host or co-host today is Faisal Siddiqui. 
Now, this whole classics campaign idea came from a LinkedIn post that he wrote a couple of weeks ago. He actually wrote in on Avis. And once I read that, I reached out to him, invited him to come on the show. He is the founder and strategist at the Creative Business Company in Toronto, Canada. They're a brand strategy company. And while he didn't work on the campaign, obviously, he's got some good background knowledge. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is, because I've I've been reading articles, various articles about this too, depending on where you turn, you will find different data from different sources. So some of the statistics that we use here, it's fair to say that they're reported differently by different people, but I think the spirit of them is true in terms of the significance of the market share gain that Avis accumulated against Hertz over a relatively small period of time. So I hope you enjoy it, and please let me know what you think of this Classics series. We hope to be able to do more of these, both uh, Faisal and I, as well as other guests that uh, we can bring on the show. And if you have an, if you have an example of a campaign you'd like to uh, see us uh, showcase, you can certainly let me know, and we'll consider that. So this is Avis. We try harder. Enjoy. We are here doing the first of what we hope will be many shows. I posted about this on LinkedIn, and there was a, there was a lot of people who DM'd me and, and talked about how interested they were in this idea. So I'm super excited that you are open to do this. I hope that you and I can do multiple campaigns, multiple classic campaigns. And classic campaigns, I remember when I, I worked on a classic car brand, a class, classic car insurance brand. Uh, a, a number of years back. And I, I, we were talking with the CEO about what's the definition of classic? Because we have to be careful here. The classic doesn't mean it happened in the 1960s, like we're going to be talking about today. Classic can happen in the noughts. It can happen, it, it, you know, it's probably 20 plus years old. Probably Maybe that's the definition of classic. But I, I think the way I'd like to be thinking about it is it's it's examples of great work from the past that people don't talk about enough or great work that is casually referred to, but people don't remember the detail and the backstory. And this campaign that we're talking about today for Avis probably falls into the category. People people are familiar with the line, with the brand, but I just think it's worthy of, you know, great conversation. And, and so I'm really happy to have you uh, with me today. Thanks for joining. Well, thanks for having me on. Appreciate to be here. I'm looking yeah, forward to it. And good to have Toronto represented. We haven't had, a, we haven't had, um, you may be the first uh, Canadian on the show. I mean, at least in terms of somebody who's actually living in a Canadian city. I don't think we've had anybody. So uh, thrilled to, to have that. Uh, but you're not here because you're Canadian. You're here because you're smart. And you're here because of that post that you um, put up on LinkedIn a couple of weeks back, which actually triggered this entire idea uh, of classic campaigns. Uh, when, you, um, when you put up your, your sort of narrative on Avis. So uh, what led to that, by the way? Why, why, um, why did you post that? There's a new generation of marketers who perhaps um, are not as familiar with the history of, of our own industry. And yeah, that's a good point, actually, true, because I, 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 what I said earlier, I probably skipped over the fact that people aren't really studying these campaigns now. People are probably younger, younger people starting out in their careers and even mid-level people. They may not even be familiar with this stuff at all. So it's a great point. 
No, and I think, you know, if we compare um, advertising and marketing to any other industry, like law or medicine, there's a regard for, for, for precedent and what people learned in the past. For some reason, there t- seems to be quite a bit of amnesia in our industry, and, and that leads to reinventing the wheel and making a whole bunch of mistakes. And so if there are some great lessons to learn by looking backwards, then I think that can be quite valuable. So that's what interested us in, in, in opening up the books and looking at some of the old campaigns from DBDB, Ogilvy, um, and many more. So tell us what you think we can learn from the sort of classic campaigns that you guys have been studying. Is there sort of any sort of common themes or learnings you think that people can can expect from looking back at these campaigns? Well, as a putting my strategy hat on, I'll, I'll I think there's kind of three things. I think the first is the the fundamentals of good strategy don't really change. Right. And, and I, I would say that's the first big lesson that we can learn. I think the second thing is when you look at these campaigns, there's a, it, they all of them blur the line between what we call brand advertising and product advertising. And they seem to do so seamlessly without getting themselves tied into a knot. And I thought that was something that we could learn as well. And then the third thing was um, for Avis specifically, we had the, Avis, I think a lot of people forget, was an unprofitable growth at all cost startup. And it was an investment in mass marketing that actually took them from the red and into the black. And so I thought that was something interesting that was quite applicable to a lot of uh, fast growing startups today. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to me because I think that, I think that, um, and I've mentioned this on the show a number of times. I think what we can we can learn from these sort of classic campaigns and by looking at any other campaigns, because as an industry, we don't like to talk about the fact that we're looking at other campaigns for inspiration. We think that classic campaigns are dated. We think we we if we reference them, we'll be thought of as also being dated. Um, if they we think because if there wasn't digital at that time, or there wasn't the internet at that time, and that consumers were apparently different at that time, so therefore you we can't learn anything from them. And I think there's nothing further from the truth. I think we have to continue to look at these campaigns for inspiration. I think that's how you know and become who you are as a strategist. It's by learning from others. It's by stealing from others, taking from others. And that is the way you form your own opinions. You're, you're, nobody's a genius out of the box. I think you find your own style, you find your own way, and you find your way to the answer by being familiar with everything else that's uh, come before us. I couldn't agree more, though. I think you, you can't break the rules until you know what the rules are. And I, I always think that in the story arc of any young ad person for the first, you know, in the, in the, in the spring of the career, I think a lot of it is, is trying to copy what you think good looks like. And only once you become comfortable with that, do you develop your own voice and your own style and the confidence to, to buck against some of those norms. But without knowing what those things are, you're more than likely just to be repeating what already exists, which is fine, but you have to know those things. I had a question for you because I came from a bit of a different background, which is I came from the world of brand consulting. Um, but I always wondered why at the large agencies, um, young planners or even young creatives weren't taught 
or walked through the history of agencies and 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 some of their past campaigns. Is that am I being unfair? Did that does that happen? Does that not happen? Do you think that is one of the reasons why um, a lot of the younger generations aren't super aware of some of this great work? I think that there's a mistake being made in too many agencies. And it is the fact that we are enamored by the new. We are enamored by the next. And we are we we hold back and we're reluctant to teach people about the past because we want to deliver new. And while there are some agencies that will talk about the work they've done in the past, most creatives and most strategists don't even want to talk about it because they don't want to encourage people to copy. Yeah. And that's a dangerous thing um, uh, for the cultures of companies. And, and the, whole, uh, the whole topic of training and why we no longer train people to do the jobs. We expect people in most departments to be able to do the job on day one. And, um, and that's just not the case. People can't, most people cannot deliver against that. Uh, so it, there's no time made for training. There's no investment made in training and in people. Um, at, at most agencies, I'm with you on that one. So let's talk about let's talk about uh, Avis. So we're talking about the rental car market. We're talking about the 1960s. Um, there, um, there was an interesting dynamic. And keep in mind that the the, the time at that time there was, um, the, you know, in terms of the, the level of penetration of of new vehicles into households was much lower than it is now. Um, it was a different time in consumerism and in culture. Um, you were looking at suburbs and suburbia starting to blossom. Um, you were looking at a, a very male-dominated business environment, and you were you were looking at sort of the early what I would think of the early and brilliant days of advertising. So, tell us, take us back to sort of the the time of this campaign, which was around the early '60s. What were the business dynamics for Avis at that time? Well, if it's okay with you, I'd actually like to go. Um, a decade before, and just and and I think one of the interesting things is how Avis started. So the myth goes that um, Avis started was started by Warren Avis, and he was a he was a bomber in World War II in Southeast Asia. And what what happened was he would often take his motorcycle on missions with him, and that was super practical because he would land in some country, and he would have his motorcycle and he wouldn't have to wait for a taxi to take him into town. And so when he was discharged, he took this back, this idea back to the US. And the main difference between that um, business concept and the prevailing rent-a-car business concept by Hertz was that um, Hertz locations used to be within cities. And so what happened was when business travelers would land in a city, they would they would have to take a trek into town. And that was often um, a bit of a journey and, and to, to rent their car. So his niche idea was, we're going to have the car rental locations at the airports. And so he had a bit of startup money. He took a loan from his parents. Now, was he, was he doing that because he wanted to focus on the business traveler rather than the, the urban worker? That's exactly right. He had a very niche audience, and that was the business traveler. Um, and so he started originally with two airports. He started in Detroit and Miami. 
And from there, uh, he grew actually in partnerships with the airlines and through a franchise system. And so for the first seven years, it was it was a growth at all costs. For this model to work, business travelers needed to know that there was an Avis location wherever they flew into. So for the first seven years, there was a tremendous amount of growth, but all of that growth was unprofitable, which funny enough is, is, is very similar to how a lot of DTC brands grow these days. And then finally, we get to 1962. It was bought by the investment bank, Lazard. And there was an interesting quote from the book, uh, a book about the classic Avis advertising campaign of the 60s that said, quote, only a strong belief in the future, symbolized especially by its bankers, managed to keep Avis in business. So in a roundabout way, I'll answer your question, uh, what was the business dynamics in the 60s? You had an innovative business concept, which was Avis um, renting out to business travelers with locations at airports that had an initial wave of successful scaling and growth, but it was unprofitable. So why why was it unprofitable? Do you have any insight into that? Was it Was it that their cost structure was too high or was it that there wasn't enough customers? My... From what I can see is there wasn't enough customers. Right. So they had a lot of capital. There was a lot of uh, capital intensive investment required to scale out and get locations at each one of these airports. Um, but the president of Avis had said, um, for, every f- for every flight that lands, Avis needs to get at least two of those travelers uh, to rent a car. And in the early 60s, they were only getting about one of those travelers to rent a car. So it was really about volume of customers, a volume of business travelers. And I think the, the dynamic was, um, even though Avis had grown tremendously and was number two at this time, people forget that they were number two only had a 10% market share. So Avis, so uh, Hertz, excuse me, was almost like a monopoly. And, and, and calling yourself number two um, was almost a misnomer. So Avis trailed really, really, really far behind. And because uh, because, because my understanding is Hertz had a 75% market share. That's right. To 10% for Avis. So it's massive sense of of scale in terms of the the factors of of uh, of sort of the David and Goliath's positioning. Exactly. So there's a turning point that happens obviously uh, in the early 60s. Um you know what's been reported about why they decided to sort of try a new direction and and where did the we try harder platform come from so we actually funny enough we have to give uh, a bit of credit to the bankers <laughs> because it was the bankers uh, at Lazard uh, when they bought Avis in the early 60s they installed uh, a new CEO called Bob Townsend, and uh, he 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 came over from American Express, and he was quite an innovative uh, business leader. He instituted a range of changes within Avis before the ads even started. So he introduced a, a profit sharing scheme. He invested money into the customer experience. So I think we first have to acknowledge that the client uh, themselves had an appetite to shake things up at Avis. Let's talk about um, a little bit about how they got to the platform. I totally love what we're about to talk about here. 
uh, about how this whole thing unlocked because it has happened to me, and I'll be curious if it's ever happened to you. It's happened to me numerous times in terms of where the original idea came from. Can can you share um, what happened? Um, and it sounds like it either happened to a to a creative or to maybe not that there wasn't planning in the U.S. back then, but it, I'd like to think that it was a planner's head or planner's curiosity that ended up getting to it. Well, I think the first funny thing is um, in the agreement that they struck, DVB um, um, decided, or they didn't decide, they told Avis that they were going to spend three months getting to know the product, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I think is, is wonderful and something you don't really see today. And, and during that three-month induction and discovery process, um, they were auditing what Avis, what made Avis different was interviewing different managers and they kept coming back. It's like, we have nothing. Uh, we don't have the, the range of cars that Hertz does. We don't have the volume of cars. We don't have the number of locations. And in a throwaway conversation, um, one of the DDB account execs was asking an Avis manager, you know, so, so why the hell does anyone rent a car from you? And you can t- almost tell there's a sense of uh, exasperation. And one of the managers just answers, well, we try harder because we have to. And it was a completely innocuous comment and it was written down, but no one really made anything of it. Um, and it was only later that there was a bit of alchemy between art direction and copy. So art direction was led by Helmut Kohl, uh, the famous art director who did all the VW campaigns, and then Paula Green. Paula Green was the genesis for the Peggy Olsen character in, in Mad Men. And, and it was it was Helmut Kohn who had the idea of really owning the number two position. And, um, and, and so he started a number of ads by saying, we're number two, but it was Paula Green who, who really brought that and took that to the next level with, with the end line saying, so we try harder. Um, so from my understanding, that's the genesis of it. Yeah, I, I love that. And, and, and of course, people, because um, DDB, assuming the VW work had already been running, had recognized the value of talking about a negative. Because, you know, conventional wisdom would be, Jesus, don't talk about the stuff you're not best at. Talk about the things you're best at. And so this was another great example of, of being able to flip a negative and turn it into a positive and turn it into something that everybody can rally around, both internally and externally. So, um, and I also, I, I love the idea that the solution came out of an interview uh, internally, because that has happened to me a number of times. I'm not sure if it's happened to you, but I remember two key, two key examples of this. And, um, and again, it goes to the point of us all being willing to to say that the idea came from elsewhere. And I'm being honest about it. I remember when I was working on Chrysler uh, Financial, which was the sort of the financing arm of the Chrysler uh, automotive brand. And we were struggling for an awful long time trying to figure out a platform because it was very generic in all the ways that we're talking about here. And I remember being in, a, in an interview or in a meeting with a client and I was driving the conversation, trying to get at shit. And um, the client just came out and out of the blue said, we're car guys in a finance world. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. 
And I and we built an entire campaign off of that brilliant unlock that we're car guys in a finance world. And the work was great. It inspired everybody. Uh, but it came from it came from those sort of unexpected places. So if we're not doing more of that as strategists, and unfortunately we're not being able to do much of that today, which is just this, which is sinful, we're missing out on the opportunity to discover these little points of inspiration because they lie dormant. Uh, in cultures within companies. But that was a brilliant example of it. And I remember one other, which was for a global uh, consulting brand, who I can't mention their name, unfortunately. But the same situation, I think I was on like interview 15, uh, and I'm in their headquarters in New York, and I'm talking to this guy. He's probably in his his 50s. He's uh, he's a a very uh, seasoned consultant. And I'm talking to him about you know, what sort of distinctions do you do? Does the organization have? How do you how do you think about it? And he said, "Well, he said while others focus on what's next, we focus on what's now." Oh, and I'm like, again, it happened, and it, and it's happened a couple other times too. And then you take that back, and it just it just brings everybody and everything to life because it's it is so true and it's so distinctive, and it's and and your imagination can go crazy with it. So again, in the case of Avis, you're saying that this came out of an interview with an with an an ad person who's interviewing a manager, and um, I mean, just a brilliant parallel. I think actually, even Burnback said. You know, we spend more time isolating the advantage, figuring out what makes this company special than the articulation. And so, you know, when I hear that they took three months to to really figure out, get under the skin of Avis, I think that for me is is, is a strong direction for strategists around, around what they need to do. Now, whether the business dynamics support that or not, or the uh, agency relationships with clients, that might be another thing. But I think really going from the inside out is the way to go. This was a C-suite that believed in the ability of marketing to transform the business. Unfortunately, that's not happening enough today. What's also interesting, because this is, this is tickles me in so many ways in this case, is the fact that once, um, I think it was Paula Green you mentioned, was sort of the Peggy Olson of her time. And she was a writer, copywriter at DDB at the time. She wrote the initial line, but then other people inside the agency didn't like it and completely disagreed with it. And I think you're saying that it's written that Paula went ahead and did something or requested that something be done in a research context. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So um, a lot of people didn't like it. A lot of the, I heard a lot of the account executives thought that by saying number two, we're, we're, we're focusing on our deficiencies. And so she, she decided, she said, let's go and test it. And so they went to the airport, they printed the ads on small, almost like a postcard size, uh, cardboard pieces of paper and showed it to a number of business travelers. And what they came back with was, was they said very simply half the people we showed it to didn't like it. Um, and a lot of the naysayers said, well, you know, there's proof positive that we've got to kill this campaign. And it was actually Bill Birnbach who had the great line who said, well, what about the other half? Those are the people that we want. And he green lighted the campaign from there. 
Yeah, I love that because I, uh, you, I, you, I can absolutely imagine that that happens every day. It's, 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 there's no doubt that you come back with a 50% didn't like it and it kills everything. So to have somebody who's strong enough to say, well, does the other 50% um, is brilliant even today. So the actual work went ahead and I'm wondering, was it about number two or was it about the, the, we try harder because they're two separate, they're two separate thoughts. One qualifies the other. But I'm wondering which which came first. Number two came first, and then we try harder came after that. Um, and I think to your point, number two, number two is the frame is the way I see it. And, and then we try harder is a way of talking about the specific promises um, that that sit underneath it. And um, the the run of the campaign was was it, it was a number of it was about 10 or 12 different executions where it says because we're number two avis can't afford the following things so avis can't afford dirty ashtrays which is why we clean them avis can't afford to have unwashed cars which is why we make sure that they're in tip-top shape and so on and so forth smudged mirrors worn wipers uh to skip the tires thirsty radiators to make you wait so for me the the success of the campaign is that we have a number of different uh, things that we can talk about in terms of our service, but we have a great frame within which we can, or sandbox within which we can play. Avis did not have a good reputation for customer service. My understanding is that Bill Barmbach, um, and, and this is probably a testament to the quality of relationship at the highest levels in an organization but he had said to to avis because of its bad reputation of customer service that they needed to really um get their service levels up and the customer experience up before the campaign would run so having that conversation and being brave enough to have your revenue delayed and being brave enough to be be willing to wait for some sort of internal cultural changes is a pretty huge thing for any agency to be advising its client on and being willing to wait and defer revenue even if it's for a month but i think in this case it probably must have taken a number of months to change the culture it's easy to say it was super brave of somebody to go out and say were number two, but they weren't saying that in a way that they were admiring number one or saying that they wanted to be number one. They were saying it in a way that they were that they were uh, um, happy to be a great number two. How how would you think about that? I think that's a great point. I actually think the number two is 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 more recessive. It's actually more atmospheric. Saying number two simply. Um, makes you believe the promises more. So I actually think it's the promises contained within the ad. So we have shorter lines, we have cleaner cars, um, we fill up our tires, we clean the ashtrays. That's the real uh, message that is enticing a customer to reconsider or consider Avis um, for the first time. That's the thing that's doing the heavy lifting. I think the number two, what that does is just says, you know, why would you believe all these things? Yeah, yeah. Because they're the underdog. And so it adds a bit of spirit to all of those promises. And and I'm sure the promises on their own um, were probably made before in isolation. I don't, I'd find it hard to believe like a car rental didn't, uh, a car rental at that time didn't make an ad that said, uh, we try. We try really hard. 
or we have shorter lines or we have really good customer service. I think the number two adds some emotional weight to it. Why? Because we can, we can all identify with being number two. What was Hertz doing while they were seeing the growth of Avis? Because Avis really, I mean, Avis gained a 19% share from 10% to roughly, what, uh, 35%, I think? Something yeah. like that? Uh, uh, over the space of four years? And that share, I, I, I don't know if they were growing the category or if they were just if that share was coming directly from, from Hertz. But what was Hertz doing in response to this, or, or did they even respond, or was there just sort of a, a confidence and an arrogance that, that some people tend to associate with large established, gorillas in the categories? So I think the the market share difference between the two at the start was so vast, seventy five to ten that for the first couple of years, they did nothing. Um, they may have had private misgivings about it, but they didn't really do anything. And it was only in, in, in 1966 that they fired back. Um, so one, they fired their agency. And two, they, they hired Carl Alley, um, which was a wonderful creative agency at that time. Um, and then they shot back with very specific pointed counterarguments. And um, one famous line was, was, was they actually named Davis and they said, quote, number two says he tries harder than who, question mark. Or another one, for years, Avis has been telling you Hertz is number one. Now we're going to tell you why, which is actually quite brilliant in itself. Yeah, a little defensive. So the actual we try harder, we're number two, was only five years. And, and Hertz seemed to have fired back towards the, the latter end of that and say year four, which was 1967. And then after that, it, it didn't really go into a, a, into a back and forth um, too much, but it, but it petered out after that. So let's do this. Let's, uh, let's recap the, the, um, the sort of ROI and those sort of business results that came out of the campaign. Maybe we can start back. Uh, maybe you can give us a summary of where it started and where it ended up. Yeah. During those okay. first those first four years of the campaign, 62 through 66, I think. Yeah. So 1962, Avis booked 32 million in revenue, but was still in the red. It was unprofitable by 3.2 million. And at that time, it had 10% market share. Um, but 1962 was the first ad launched. And uh, there was a series of about 20 spots in that first year. And then by 1963, revenue was 38 million. And for the first time, they were in the black. So profit was 1.2 million. And that was on an ad budget of about a million, or 1.75 million. Um, and then it just got better and better and momentum grew. Um, and it went all the way until 1966, when their market share had gone from 10% to 35%. Let's wrap up with one final point, which is um, what, or let's say, why was the platform so effective for Avis, in your opinion? I think there's three reasons. First, from, I think first, they acknowledged what the challenge was. They acknowledged that they were a lot smaller than Hertz, and they found a distinctive space to occupy. They figured out where can we fight where we're going to be first. And I think with that type of thinking, they, they, they really change why people, you know, 
uh, rented cars. So it went, they changed the drivers of the category from, from fleet size and fleet location to service. So I think that was the first big learning. Um, the second big learning is, is they blurred the line between brand and product. So these days we, we, we think about top of the funnel as very emotive with not too many specifics and bottom of the funnel is perhaps the opposite. And, and you don't really see such a monochromatic distinction in any of these ads. They, they do both of them very well. There's wit, there's charm, but there's also very specific promises being made. And I think the last thing, which is maybe being a bit nostalgic, but you also have an unprofitable company uh, where the leadership say, we're going to commit to mass advertising and that's what's going to get us out of this hole. And so you don't really see that too much these days, but that for me, I think is quite important as well. It is Faisal Siddiqui. He is founder strategist at Creative Business Company in Toronto, Canada. Thanks for doing the episode. Thanks for, for having me on. Appreciate it. And we'll see everybody in the next episode.